Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In anticipation of LA Opera's production of The Anonymous Lover by Joseph Bologna, LA Opera is happy to present this conversation on history versus opera. The Anonymous Lover will be available online free of charge from November 14th at 5 p.m. till November 29th at 5 p.m. To register, please visit LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org. Also, please note that this conversation does include a discussion of the historic slave trade between Europe and the Americas. This history versus opera conversation was recorded on November 7th and features Muriel McClendon, Jennifer Palmer, and Jeremy Frank. Muriel McClendon is Associate Professor of History at UCLA, where she teaches courses on medieval and early modern European history. She has published extensively and received her BA in history from Yale and an MA and PhD in history from Stanford. Dr. McClendon is joined by Jennifer Palmer, who is a historian of early modern France and the Francophone world. She teaches courses about Europe, the Atlantic world, women and gender, race, slavery, and pirates. She was awarded the Russell Award in undergraduate teaching and a member of the University of Georgia Teaching Academy. Her first book, Intimate Bonds, Family and Slavery in the French Atlantic, follows the stories of the people who built families and fortunes on both sides of the French Atlantic. And they are joined by Jeremy Frank, Associate Chorus Master and Assistant Conductor here at LA Opera. Jeremy has worked on over 60 productions and is also a part-time lecturer in vocal arts and opera at the University of Southern California. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here this morning for all kinds of reasons, but I'm particularly excited to talk about Joseph Boulogne. So hello, Jennifer. Thank you so much for being with us, Jennifer. I know that it has been a busy week in Georgia, and so we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And hello again, Jeremy. It is always a pleasure to see you. So I know that some of the attendees are just joining us and though we've heard sort of a little bit before, maybe we can talk sort of a little bit about life in the French Atlantic. Now, as Stacey just said, I'm a historian of 16th century England. And at that time, Europeans were just sort of making some of their first contacts with the area that we now call the Americas. But by the time Joseph Boulogne was born, it's a period that you specialize in, Jennifer, Europeans were much established in what we now call the Caribbean. So maybe could you tell us a little bit about what life was like in 18th century Guadeloupe and especially for somebody like Joseph Boulogne? Sure, I'd be really pleased to. So Guadeloupe is a small island in the Caribbean. And so it's one of the smaller colonies in France. Um, It was initially settled and established in the early 1600s. And so by the time Joseph de Bologna was born about 1745, Guadeloupe is very well established The families who own land there and own plantations there have been there for generations, as it seems indeed uh, Joseph Bologna's family was, his father's family was, and starting to be kind of a backwater by that point in colonial terms, because most of the industry and most of the product is coming from what is now Haiti, then it was known as Saint-Domingue. And so um, even by the mid 18th century, 
Guadalupe was actually the third port of call after first uh, Saint-Domingue, then Martinique, for French ships that were going back and forth, either with French products from France, but especially with people who were enslaved who were brought from Africa. Um, and so this has some really important implications for Joseph de Boulogne and what his life would have been like and what his community would have been like. Um, for one thing, uh, as we can imagine, the population of white people in Guadeloupe was very small in about, in, in about 1750, so when he was very young. There were about 8,000 people, white people, white French people in Guadeloupe. There were about 1,000 free people of color, as Joseph Boulogne himself was, and there were about 43,000 enslaved people. And so there's a very large population disparity. And so all around him as a child, he would have been surrounded by people who were enslaved. He would have been very familiar with plantation capitalism and with plantation slavery and with the, the casual violence that it entailed. That's something that he really would have seen and known and understood. And also the hierarchy that comes with that. He would have seen himself as different from the people who were enslaved on his father's plantation. And so we might see a similarity because he was a mixed race child. Uh, he was the son of a white French man and an African descended woman who probably was his father's slave. And so we might see a similarity between him and the enslaved people who his father held on his plantation, but he probably would not have seen that similarity. He probably would have seen instead a lot of differences in terms of what people did and how they talked and what they ate and what they wore. And so he would have seen himself as a free person of color, a free person of color, not only a person of color. Interesting. One of the things that fascinates me is that his father acknowledged him and eventually brought him to France and brought and brought him up in France. And so I'm wondering, uh, we know that his father was married to a French woman. Did they have any children? Do we do we know that? Yes. And so it seems as if his father uh, and his father's legitimate wife were married in Guadeloupe, which suggests that uh, the wife was also from Guadeloupe or of Guadeloupean origins. They did have a legitimate daughter. It seems like they did not have any legitimate sons or at least any who survived to adulthood. Uh, interesting. So do you think that that played a role in his father's willingness to acknowledge him and to bring him up and in, in France and take him to France? Yeah, it probably did, um, because his father maybe maybe would have wanted a son, although as an illegitimate son, Joseph wouldn't have been able to inherit his father's estate. Still, it was actually very common for white French men who had children with, with women of color, either enslaved women or free women, it was actually pretty common for them to acknowledge them and to give them property of various kinds, which might include cash, it might include land, and it, it also might include people who were enslaved. And so that was not an uncommon occurrence 
And in fact, there's one colonial observer, his name is Moreau de Saint-Marie, and he was from Martinique. But he, he even suggested that it was kind of expected that there was some social pressure for white fathers to free and give resources to their, um, their mixed race children. I am absolutely certain that that did not occur more than it occurred, um, but still it occurred with enough frequency that there was a fairly large and fairly prosperous uh, population of free people of color, especially in colonial Haiti. The population was much smaller in Guadeloupe of free people of color, but especially in colonial Haiti. And so it would not have been uncommon that his father gave him money, his father gave him resources, and it was not even uncommon that his father sent him to France for an education. That would have been very, very expensive. And so if you take a child to France, whether it's a child of color who is illegitimate or a white child who is legitimate, it's an investment. It costs a lot to get there. It costs a lot to maintain them. But there is serious money in the colonies. That is where the money in the 18th century is being made. And so, uh, by all accounts, Joseph's father was a very wealthy man who owned multiple plantations and hundreds of slaves. So he could afford it. He could afford to send or take his son to France, which he did. What is a little bit unusual is that Joseph seems to have been educated for the military. He went into a military academy. And it would have been, I think, more common for sons to be educated as gentlemen, but with the expectation that then they would return to the Antilles and run their father's plantations. But that doesn't seem to have been the expectation for, for Joseph Bologna. So do we have a sense of what his life in France might have been like as he was being educated and growing up? Yes. And so it's an interesting problem. As Maestro Conlon indicated in the last hour, we don't have anything in Bologna's own hand. We don't know what his reactions were. We wish we wish he would have left a diary that says, oh, I encountered racism here or, oh, you know, I, this is what happened to me. But but we don't. But we can use history to build on what we know about the experiences of other free people of color in France to, to help us think about what his experiences might have been like in France too. And so here is kind of what we know. First of all, he had an extraordinary career, right? We know that he went to this military academy and he excelled, especially at fencing, for which by the time he was a teenager, he had a reputation as an incredible swordsman, one of the best in Europe. And so he became really renowned when he was very young for his skill with the sword, for his skill at, at fencing. It's not until after that, when he is a little bit older, that we learn that he's also such a skilled violin player and eventually composer. But his life in Europe would have been very different from his life in the colonies, and his expectations would have been very different in France than in Guadeloupe because of his skin color and also because of his situation. So there were other people of color in France. It seems like there were about 5,000, according to most estimates, people of color in the country. 
So this is a country of 25 million, 5,000 in comparison is not a very large number. However, most were concentrated in Paris. And I think probably there were actually more, but the 5,000 is the number that historians have been able to, to count. Most of these people were enslaved. And that's kind of a tricky thing because slavery was technically not legal in France. However, most of the people who were people of color in France were enslaved. There were also some free people of color like Joseph Bologna, but very few of them circulated in the same incredibly elite circles that he did. And so this meant that for the most part, he was in a fairly unique social situation. There were sons and daughters of wealthy plantation owners, for example, but what is really distinctive about Joseph Bologna is, is that he circulates in aristocratic circles, which are open to him because of his skill set, because of his skill with the sword and his skill with the bow. Remember that this is during the Enlightenment, and so social hierarchies are starting to break down at this time, and people in the upper echelons of society are kind of looking to expand their social circles, especially with people who are considered to be accomplished or witty or notable playwrights or authors. This is the time when salons are flourishing, and so this is the social milieu in which Joseph de Bologna finds himself, and he, he takes to it. That said, there were limitations that we can infer even though they might not be that clear. All the people virtually that Joseph Bologna would have known would have been white. He would have been surrounded by white faces, which was very different from his experience in Guadalupe with the, it seems, possible exception of his mother, who it seems also lived with him or near him in Paris for the rest of her life until the 1880s maybe, or 1780s maybe. But it's hard to know in this context if he was seen as inferior or denied opportunities because of his skin color. What we do know is that he made incredible opportunities for himself. We know that many of the people who mentioned him in historical sources did mention his race. And his race was notable because he was the only, the, the only man of color in his social circles. And we also know that he never married. And so this is something that is a little bit unusual. Most people in France did get married. And so it could be that he never married because he couldn't find someone who was willing to marry him. It also might not be that, right? I mean, it could also be that he that he didn't want to get married or there were other reasons not to get married. And I think that this particularly comes into play when we look at the opera because it's really tempting to read his autobiography into the opera. It's really tempting to think that he pined in unrequited love for a woman who wouldn't consider him maybe because of his skin color. And the plot of the opera kind of lends itself to this reading because Leontine is a, is a feudal seigneur, right? She's a lord. She is a member of the hereditary French nobility, the highest ranks of the nobility in France. Uh, and it seems as if Valcourt, who loves her, 
is not. He seems to be a noble, but he seems to be a noble of much lesser rank. And so audiences would have understood this and they would have viewed their marriage as something of a mesalliance, um, as an inappropriate marriage, especially because the woman in this case was of a higher rank than the man. And so it would have upset a gender hierarchy as well as a social hierarchy. And right about the time that Joseph Bologna wrote this opera in 1780, marriage between people of color and white people was also starting to be seen as mesalliance, especially in the upper ranks of society. It continued in the lower ranks of society. It had been very common. It continued both in France and in, in the Antilles. It's tempting to see that, um, his own experience in the opera, but it's impossible to know. And one more thing that I just want to say about that is that I think that it is important when we think about his life and maybe why he didn't get married, it's important to think about African influence in Guadeloupe and potentially on his life, possibly through his mother, who it has been suggested was of Senegalese origin and so possibly even born in Africa. In Guadeloupe, most free people of color did not marry. About 79% free men of color did not marry and about 71% free women of color in Guadeloupe did not marry, including his mother. In comparison in France, about a quarter of people didn't marry. So it's a very big difference. So it could be that his continued bachelorhood harkens back to a Guadeloupian tradition. Oh, interesting. I just like to roll back for a little bit and ask, do either of you know anything or can speculate about his music education? This is something about which I know nothing. And he clearly had he clearly had an education and took to it. Most of the information that I have found about uh, Joseph Bologna's musical education um, comes both from the foreword to the critical edition of the score prepared by Nick Janopoulos. And um, we have a fantastic dramaturg on this production, uh, whose name is Ariana Elou. And uh, so she prepared a huge document for us, uh, for the cast and the production team to help us prepare for what we're about to interpret. And most of the information talks about Joseph as a fully formed musician. He became the concertmaster of an orchestra called Concert des Amateurs in 1771. And he received huge acclaim for uh, performances of his violin concertos, which he wrote for himself, which was really commonplace in that time. Mozart did the same thing. Just two years after that, he was named the director of that same orchestra. And uh, in the first several years of his directorship, that ensemble took on quite a lot of prestige and became one of the best known and uh, highest quality uh, orchestras throughout Europe. He was so successful, in fact, that Marie Antoinette invited him to play for her in court. And so we know that the level, however he got there, the level of his music making was extremely high. In fact, in two years after his appointment to uh, be the director of that orchestra, he was under consideration to be the director of the most prestigious operatic post in France at the time, the Académie Royale de Musique. But there, he totally hit a glass ceiling. 
and was not awarded the post because many of the singers of that organization wrote directly to the king and said that they would not work for a mixed race conductor. I'm fascinated uh, to learn all of this information. Thanks so much, Jennifer. In fact, I hope I have anything to add. I, I, you know, I can talk about the music. But one of the big themes, I think, that is common through not just Joseph's life in Guadeloupe, but also in France, was that he was almost permanently in a position where he experienced quite a lot of otherness. He didn't exactly have a large population in Guadeloupe that reflected his own experience. And then when he came to France, though he did absolutely travel in this very elite circle, uh, he never completely uh, belonged to that. I think your observation, Jennifer, that it's really tempting to read his autobiography into the libretto. We have actually, as a team, kind of gone there. And I think the material actually really bears it. You know, in a strange way, the story of this opera is very much like a love triangle story, but only with two actual characters. Leontine herself, who we've mentioned is in the higher social strata, but uh, has a lot to lose as a character because she's inherited the property of her ex-husband and enjoys a certain amount of reputation, which at this time in France uh, and throughout Europe is extremely important. And then uh, the character Valcourt, who is someone that she knows uh, at court and, um, and cherishes a great deal as a very good friend because of her very bad experience with her first husband who loved her at first and then fell out of love with her. Uh, we could make direct comparisons with the character Rosina from Le Nozze di Figaro, but who we first meet in Beaumarchais' first installment of those trilogy of plays, uh, Barbara of Seville. You know, she, Rosina is wooed at first by the Count, Count Almaviva, and then their relationship stales and he falls out of love with her. And the exact same thing happened with Leontine and her first relationship, so she's reluctant that way. But Valcourt, knowing that he has very little, he has a pretty weak argument to convince her to make their friendship something more. And uh, he risks his reputation and um, his social status. We have, and it is possible to see it, that also being in a mixed race relationship for him is also threatening. Now, as it turns out, we have an amazing cast of six singers. Um, our sopranos are African-American, uh, both a woman portraying Leontine, Tiffany Townsend, and also um, Alicia Fox, who portrays Dorothée. And uh, our Valcourt is actually a white tenor, Rob Staley. Um, so in a way, it, it turns the equation on its head if we look very literally at the race relations as they would have existed in the 18th century. But I know in a way, uh, it's silly to even comment on this as an LGBTQ, but that idea of otherness, uh, it resonates a lot with me. And I think it can resonate with all audiences. You know, I, I can think of uh, a time in high school where I had a best friend and I felt very strongly for this person and really misunderstood <laughs> what was kind of going on with them within my own heart. That's Leontine's side of the story here. But Valcourt experiences it so acutely that he uh, creates a Cyrano de Bergerac-esque character for himself to be able to reveal his true feelings to her. It's fascinating, uh, convoluted, but it's certainly not the first convoluted opera plot that we encounter in opera.
So Jeremy, you said that you could really sort of expand on the music for us. So what do you think that we should be thinking about as we as we watch this opera? And I'm very excited. I got my ticket already. Oh, so I'm I am ready. I'm ready. What should what should we should we be looking for? There's a lot actually. Um, this this production is beautiful. The music is beautiful. Weirdly, in the 18th century, as Maestro Conlon may have uh, mentioned last hour, the audiences really looked to the story of an opera or to its libretto to carry the day. But actually, the music is much stronger, in my opinion, than the story here, which is interesting, but the music is very special. Uh, in many ways, it's going to sound to you uh, just as crisp and refreshing and elegant as other composers' material from this same era. It might be worth noting, France from 1315, uh, Louis X had abolished slavery within the country, although that isn't the complete story. And of course, there was the Code Noir or the Black Code, which governed race relationships in France um, from the late 17th century through the French Revolution. But things really took a turn for the worst when Napoleon took over and reinstated slavery institutionally uh, in 1802. And at that time, uh, that's when we started to come to know of Joseph de Bologna as uh, quote unquote Black Mozart, which I think is some of the laziest uh, labeling of somebody possible because uh, Joseph is a, a fantastic composer in his own right. And obviously that term reflects quite a great deal of racism. One of the themes I wanted to highlight today is otherness. Uh, in some ways, Joseph de Bologna's music is very similar to other composers like Mozart, until it's not. In fact, while we were recording the orchestra last week as the accompaniment, James and the music, musical team and I would circle certain passages and we would say, do you think he meant this? I'm sitting at my piano, which I think you can hear. And I promise those of you uh, who have been opera for educators goers for a long time, you know, sometimes I talk about music theory. I don't do it to scare any of you off. But when we uh, start learning music theory, either in high school or in our freshman year of college, we learn about three different forms of the harmonic or of the minor scale. So if we play a major scale, it's fairly straightforward. If I'm playing in C, that's a scale that uses all of the white notes of the piano. But if I play C minor, we really have to ask which version I mean. Do we mean the natural minor? Do we mean the melodic minor, which on the ascending version has notes stolen from the major key and descending has notes stolen from the natural minor? Or do we mean the harmonic minor, which is a very exotic sounding scale um, that has an almost forbidden interval in the last three notes ascending and the first three notes descending? That interval, nonetheless, uh, let's call it spicy. And it's an interval that Joseph Bologna uses a few times in this score. So, uh, and it, it's so unusual that even among our professional players, 
It's unfortunately not a minor fourth. Actually, that's an augmented fourth that I think you mean. And that's also referred to as a tritone, or as you correctly pointed out, the devil's interval. Some of that dates to the way that keyboard instruments and other instruments were tuned before Bach, because that interval was in certain keys super, super out of tune. And in fact, last week while we were recording the orchestra, this spicy interval was out of tune too, because the players couldn't quite believe that those were really the right notes that Joseph de Bologna intended. And occasionally, if things were really pungent to our ears, we would uh, soften the dissonance a little, either by giving both singers and orchestra an ornament that's more conventional to 21st century ears, or um, quite frequently, we left it in because it's part of his fingerprint as a composer. There are times when uh, various groups of instruments are playing very similar melodies, but on a downbeat, one group will play one note and the other group will play a note exactly a half step away. Talk about pungent dissonance. But um, that's something that is quite characteristic throughout world music. In fact, it has a name. Uh, it's called heterophony. So um, homophonic writing or homophony is sort of like the old kind of hymns that you might have encountered at the beginning of the 20th century, dating from the early 1900s. I grew up Lutheran, so um, if you think of a mighty fortress is our God, and if you can call to your ear the sound of an organ playing one chord for every single melodic note that you're hearing, that's homophony. Heterophony is where everybody plays the same melody, but you are free to riff a little bit in certain points, and that invites this kind of pungency. But I think it's it's one of the flavors of the score that could only come from a composer who had his earliest upbringing outside of France and in a place with lots of cultures and lots of different sounds in the air. And something that you find in his score, but only rarely, uh, because I think um, perhaps he sensed that it was uh, a very different color uh, from what everybody else was writing. And so it's there, but not hugely prominent. Well, and what I would add to that, Jeremy, is I was thinking about the same thing. I was wondering if maybe his musical education did start in Guadeloupe when he was a very young child. And there was no what we might call today an art scene. There was no art scene in Guadeloupe. There were no theaters. There was certainly no opera. There were no orchestras. So likely the first European music you would have encountered would have been played by individual musicians or maybe a trio or a quartet of musicians. Very likely likely people who were enslaved and who were specially trained to be musicians and would be hired out to play at parties or, or things of that nature. And so it's possible that he would have heard that music in people's houses, um, in you know associates or friends of his father's houses. But it's also very likely that he heard music that was created by people who were enslaved. And one of the things that travelers to the French Antilles habitually commented on was the music of people who were enslaved um, and the music and the dances and how different they were from European music, 
but also how pervasive they were, how common they were, and how it was something that they would hear and that they would encounter and that white people would have been aware of too. Oh, I'm so thankful to you for bringing up dance uh, because I completely forgot. And uh, this piece does feature a ton of dance, which is um, characteristic for French opera in general, particularly because it was something that was started in, in the court. Uh, I think of Louis the, uh, Louis XIV. Ballet is a big part. And uh, if you take as an amount of time, the ratio between the ballet music to the other music, the, the singing and the storytelling music in this piece, about a third of the piece is ballet or overture. You know, that's much more than other opera, but um, it's very common for this period. And actually, as soon as I leave your company, we already have the orchestra recorded, but we've decided to add a feature that is common to 18th century opera and add a basso continuo, which is the harpsichord that plays along uh, with the orchestra. I was wearing my music staff uh, <laughs> hat on the day that we recorded. So I'm actually going to overdub, um, but uh, I'm overdubbing the overture and all of the ballets. And I'm trying to think if there's anything spicy per se in that music. You know, Maestro the other day was mentioning to me, he said, we were listening to the recordings to kind of proofread them and find the best takes. And he said, I love his writing in minor keys. And I really do too. And there, you know, for each of the ballets that I'll be recording this afternoon, uh, they're very frequently in an ABA form, where the A sections are in major keys, and then the B section is in this, uh, he even labels it in the score, mineur, which I think is so romantic sounding. Um, but that's often where the best music is. I sort of got lost on my train of thought there, so <laughs> you all can save me. There is a question from the, the Q&A about intonation, tuning. Yes, and... yes. Yeah, no, this is this is a great question and it's tricky. It's asking about um, das wohltempierte Klavier, which is Bach's uh, well-tempered clavier. We refer to it in English. Uh, it is a place where uh, composers, well, it reflects a change in tuning, especially for keyboard instruments. Um, harpsichords before uh, 1700 were tuned to uh, just tuning usually, which is, um, you know, tuning has to do with actually the physics of music. Uh, I'll make this not too horribly long, but if we um, start with a piece of string a certain length, it will sound at one frequency or one note. If we cut that string in half and then pluck it again, it will sound exactly one octave higher. And this is uh, physics and math that even the ancient Greeks knew. Um, not just uh, one to two relationships make intervals that we recognize in music today. Two to three also does, that's a perfect fifth. Three to four is a perfect fourth. And if you notice, these first few intervals are referred to as perfect intervals. That doesn't just have to do with their tuning, although it is a lovely coincidence that that happens. The problem with that though, is if you make perfect fifths uh, from, let's say we start on the note C and go a perfect uh, fifth above that and tune that perfectly to G and then continue going through D, then A, then E, then B, then F sharp. Um, this is the interval between C and F sharp is that one that we noted earlier called the devil's interval. By the time you've done all of these perfect tunings up to F sharp, you get a really pungently dissonant thing because it, the intervals have actually gotten too big along the way. 
So the tuning that we use now, or this well-tempered tuning, is actually a series of microscopic compromises to keep uh, an instrument in tune top to bottom. As you probably know, most pianos have 88 keys, and if we did just tuning, we'd, um, we would intentionally make certain keys more in tune and others out of tune. But with well-tempered tuning, we make them all out of tune so that we can play in any key that we want. And um, Joseph de Bologna would have been uh, composing for instruments that are already well-tempered. Um, so actually the discussion of these spicy intervals aren't just about tuning because we wouldn't have perceived the extra spiciness, but the, I do think they reflect his um, multi-ethnic background. Interesting. I wanted to actually ask some more questions about the story or in particular reception of the of the story. And so Jennifer, do you think what, what might audiences have made of this story? The type of story that was very popular in the second half of the 18th century. Um, and there are a couple elements of the story that make me think that. So first is the pastoral setting. Uh, it's a very anonymous setting, actually. It's it's not any particular time or any particular place. It's just a pastoral setting with a wedding and villagers dancing. And that was very, very popular, particularly starting from the, the works of, of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Emile is what I'm really thinking of. And so Rousseau wrote this romantic novel about unrequited love um, and a woman who falls in love with a man and they can't get married. And she dutifully marries another man who is her father's choice. Um, and all of this plays out in a beautiful natural setting uh, in the Alps. So here we don't have the Alps, but, but a lot of what else is present in Rousseau and what readers really loved about Rousseau is there. We've got the love story, we've got the pastoral setting, we've got the villagers who are in love and who, because of their lower social status, are able to express their love and desire in a way that the, that the noble characters don't and maybe you know, according to contemporary expectations, can't. Another thing that struck me is the the expectation that Leontine has that she will marry for love. And so she's very sad and she doesn't want to fall in love again because her first husband started by loving her and fell out of love with her over the course of time. And this was a new expectation. And so in the second half of the 18th century, expectations about what marriage is were starting to change. And previously it had really been seen as a family arrangement and affection was, you know, something desirable, but not necessarily the basis for the primary reason for a marriage. Rather, the, the primary reason for a marriage was to, um, to kind of forward the interests of your family, to have children and have your children or your grandchildren end up in a better place than you. But in the opera, what we really see is that the expectation is a marriage for love. The expectation is that the, the marital couple will be in love and that they will have a happy marriage where love will continue and grow. Now, Jennifer, I just have to say, as a historian of England, we like to ascribe the emergence of companion marriage to the Protestant Reformation. I just want you to know that. <laughs> don't, say, don't say Rousseau, it was, it was the Reformation. That's when it all began. And so Rousseau was late to the party on, uh, on, on that. So I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm sure it's historiographically contested, but I just have to throw in what English historians have been talking about. Well, I will say that uh, it seems like Joseph Bologna's father, the white plantation owner, it seems like his family was Protestant. 
Oh, oh interesting. Oh, this is a great thing for me to ask. Do we know what happened to his father and and his and his mother? Because said his mother went to, went to France. Does anybody know anything about what happened to them? Uh, his father seemed, or his mother seems to have lived in France until her death. There is a will that she made that seems to be in existence, and it, she named her son Joseph as her primary legatee, so as her her heir who got all her property. Uh, it seems as if Joseph's father provided for his mother and so gave her resources and enabled her to live in Paris. His father also went to France all, for a while, although he did return to Guadeloupe. His father also was accused of and tried for and convicted of murder. So that's an, an exciting part of the story. Uh, but he was convicted in absentia. And so the sentence was never carried out. But that that is a part of the reason, it seems, that his father, uh, his father's wife and potentially young Joseph went to France in the first place. Ooh, do we know who he was accused of murdering? Uh, his cousin. Family was, goes to the 18th century. Yeah, there was a, a big uh, contingent of Boulogne family members and plantation owners, it seems, in Guadeloupe. And there was a family dinner that got a little bit too rambunctious. And so it seems as if this cousin was killed and Joseph's father was tried for his murder. Oh wow. <laughs> wow, I've heard of family dinners getting a little spicy but not 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 quite like that so thanksgiving is coming up and we all we I, all I, be careful out there everybody i'm just out. i'm just saying i'm just saying <laughs> let's see there's another question in this it sounds like i see in the chat sounds like christmas in my house i'm sorry to hear that <laughs> uh jeremy there's another question in the in the, in the chat to you about the oh, yes. of the blue third yeah, um, that's a that's a lovely term to call it because this uh, third that I can't remember the size of uh, <laughs> in terms of music theory talk, uh, it does feature prominently in blues music as well, but certainly not only. And I hope I haven't um, overstated uh, this particular interval. You know, uh, one of the limitations of studying music theory is that it is theoretical and it is mostly trying to describe patterns that composers write spontaneously. Um, and so it's a backward looking kind of science if it, if it is, it isn't in fact a science. But you know, when I was describing the, the three different kinds of minor scales and particularly the harmonic minor, which again is this pattern to show you this interval, that is a harmonic scale, uh, harmonic minor scale that occurs through lots of different kinds of music, including white European music. It is uh, perhaps more prevalent in world musics. Um, that interval appears throughout Arab cultures, um, throughout, well, uh, I won't say that because that's not quite true, but um, throughout the Middle East, some African music um, can uh, exploit that interval too. So I don't know that it um, is exactly him writing any kind of uh, commentary about oppression or slavery. Um, that would be sort of a, a 21st century viewpoint of it. But certainly if he was listening to non-Western canon music that he might have encountered in Guadeloupe, uh, that interval likely would have played more prominence. And so it might have been part of his musical vocabulary. Augmented second. Well done, Kristen Baum. That's exactly what it is. Woo! -hoo, all right. 
Um, let's see. We I see we're getting to the end of time. So let me ask a question that we that we can wrap up with. We've heard a little bit about um, why we think uh, Boulogne's music has not been remembered or his biography has not been remembered. So I'd love to hear what the two of you have to say about it. Also, I'm going to do something as a historian that I should never do. What do you think the future of his music is going to be? Because historians are really bad at predicting the future. We're, we're great at predicting the past. You know, we are down with that, but we are not very good at predicting the future. But so I'm just curious on what both of you think might be uh, his his future now. Well, I, th- I think, um, you know, Napoleon did a huge disservice to Joseph uh, de Bologna and really squelched a lot of interest in his music both by equating him to Mozart, uh, who wrote differently, and by and by instating institutional racism, really, back into France in the early part of the 19th century. You know, there, as far as the future goes, I can talk uh, with a, quite a lot of certainty about the immediate future. There's a ton of interest in Joseph de Bologna and this piece in particular. You know, there are lots of productions planned for the next year or 18 months. Um, we Our production is listed in the New York Times within the last week or two as one of 10 things in November not to miss. And uh, I, I love that that is true, uh, first of all, because the piece is so interesting, beautiful, fresh. Um, I also love that it's happening because our company is uh, championing, championing the piece. I also love that we are making it free to be streamed for a period of two weeks. Um, this has been such an interesting time in lockdown uh, where our company certainly has um, pivoted hard to digital platforms. And we were among the first in the country to do it. Um, And our mission has been to make all of that uh, freely accessible. So we're hoping to, you know, be a gateway drug to other people. And how interesting to, um, if this were to be somebody's first operatic experience, how interesting that they're not just listening to Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart or uh, Giuseppe Verdi or Puccini. They should listen to those guys too, but they should also listen to uh, Gabriella Frank, who we have a project coming up uh, in a few weeks time, which is exquisitely beautiful. I'm also working on that. Um, you know, we there are a lot of voices in this repertoire that deserve to be heard that were unjustly suppressed. And so uh, I just think it's great. And I hope this trend continues. So Jennifer, I guess um, one thing I'm, I'm really thinking about is sort of, I guess sort of 18th century studies is I guess what I'm really asking. Um, what's going on in the 18th centuries? How might this, this fit in? Will people, are people in 18th century studies sort of looking at the uh, previously unknown uh, and looking at them in new ways? I think the answer is definitely yes. Uh, And so in order to think about that, I would invoke a famous scholar named uh, Michel Rolf Trouillot, who was Haitian. And he was writing in the 1990s and so much, much after the 18th century, but he wrote about the Haitian revolution, um, which was this incredibly important transformative historical event that basically no one talked about for for two centuries. He, posited that it was forgotten because it was unthinkable at even at the time it happened and even though it actually happened because it totally upset ideas about racial hierarchy and it upset ideas that emerged in the 18th century and that we've continued to hold until today. 
And I think that something similar is happening here, that Joseph de, Joseph Bologna's accomplishments really challenged emerging and continuing ideas about racial hierarchy and ideas about who could be a composer and who could be a musician and who can be an artist. Now, in the past you know, 20 years or so, both in scholarship, but also in daily life, we're seeing those assumptions being broken down. We're seeing them be, bro be broken down in books, but we're also seeing them being broken down uh, on the streets and uh, in, in on monuments and, um, and all over the place. And so I think that that's gonna continue. And I, I hope, I predict that as that happens, that Joseph Bologna will receive more and more recognition for his accomplishments and his music. This has been fantastic. I've learned so much. I can't wait to see the production. I will be front and center next Saturday at five o'clock. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.